My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, The Story Podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 139, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, 1 Kings 15 and 16, 2 Chronicles 16 and 17, and Song of Songs chapter 4. 1 Kings 15. In the eighteenth year of the reign of Jeroboam's son of Nebat, Abijah became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three years. His mother's name was Makkah, daughter of Absalom. He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his forefather, had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord, his God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. There was war against Abijah, and Jeroboam throughout Abijah's lifetime, as for the other events of Abijah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annuals of the kings of Judah? There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, and Asa, his son, succeeded him as king. In the twentieth year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem forty-one years. His grandmother's name was Makkah, daughter of Absalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his ancestors had made. He even disposed his grandmother Makkah from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive image for the worship of Asherah. Asa cut it down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Asa then took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace. He entrusted it to his officials and sent them to Ben-Hadad, son of Tabramon, the son of Hezion, the king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I am sending you a gift of silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. Ben-Hadad agreed with King Asa and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. He conquered Ijan, Dan, Abel, Beth, Makkah, and all Kinnereth in addition to Naphtali. When Basha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and withdrew to Tirzah. Then King Asa issued an order to all Judah. No one was exempt. And they carried away from Ramah the stones and timber Basha had been using there. With them, King Asa built up Gabah and Benjamin and also Mizpah. As for all the other events of Asa's reign, all his achievements, all he did in the cities he built, are they not written in the book of annuals of the kings of Judah? In his old age, however, his feet became diseased. Then Asa rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of his father David. And Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king. 
Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father and committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. Bashah, son of Ahijah, from the tribe of Issachar, plotted against him, and he struck him down at Gibthon, a Philistine town, while Nadab and all Israel were besieging it. Bashah killed Nadab in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all, according to the word of the Lord, given through his servant Ahijah, the Shilonite. This happened because of the sins Jeroboam had committed and had caused Israel to commit, and because he aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel. As for the other events of Nadab's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annuals of the king of Israel? There was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, son of Ahijah, became king of all Israel and Terzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of Jeroboam and committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, son of Hanani, concerning Basha. I lifted you up from the dust and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. But you followed the way of Jeroboam and caused my people Israel to sin and to rouse my anger by their sins. So I am about to wipe out Basha and his house, and I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Dogs will eat those belonging to Basha who die in the city, and birds will feed on those who die in the country." As for the other events of Bashar's reign, what he did and his achievements, are they not written in the book of the annuals of the king of Israel? Bashar rested with his ancestors and was buried in Terzah, and Elah, his son, succeeded him as king. Moreover, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Jehu, son of Hanani, to Bashar and his house because of all the evil he had done in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger by the things he did, becoming like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. In the 26 years of Asa, king of Judah, Allah, son of Bashar, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Terzah two years. Zimri, one of his officials, who had command of half his chariots, plotted against him. Allah was in Terzah at the time, getting drunk in the home of Arza, the palace administrator of Terzah. Zimri came in, struck him down, and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. Then he succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign and was seated on the throne, he killed off Bashar's whole family. He did not spare a single male, whether relative or friend. So Zimri destroyed the whole family of Bashar in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken against Bashar through the prophet Jehu. Because of all the sins Bashar and his son Elah had committed and caused Israel to commit, so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols." As for the other events of Allah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of annuals of the king of Israel? In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned in Tirzah seven days. The army was encamped near Gibbethon, a Philistine town. When the Israelites in the camp heard that Zimri had plotted against the king and murdered him, they proclaimed Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that very day there in the camp. Then Omri and all the Israelites with him withdrew from Gibbethon and laid siege to Tirzah. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the royal palace and set the palace on fire around him. So he died because of the sins he had committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and following the ways of Jeroboam and committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. 
As for the other events of Zimri's reign and the rebellion he carried out, are they not written in the book of the annuals of the king of Israel? Then the people of Israel were split into two factions, half supported Tibni, son of Ginnath, for king, and the other half supported Omri. But Omri's followers proved stronger than those of Tibni, son of Ginnath. So Tibni died and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned 12 years, six of them in Terzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemar for two talents of silver and built a city on the hill, calling it Samaria after Shemar the name of the former owner of the hill. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all of those before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit, so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. As for the other events of Omri's reign, what he did and the things he achieved, are they not written in the book of the annuals of the kings of Israel? Omri rested with his ancestors and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, succeeded him as king. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal and that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Heal of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. 2 Chronicles 16. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Bashaw, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Asa then took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace and sent it to Ben-Hadid, king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I am sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Bashaw, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. Ben-Hadad agreed with King Asa and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. They conquered Ejan, Dan, Abel-Mayam, and all the story cities of Naphtali. When Basha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and abandoned his work. Then King Asa brought all the men of Judah, and they carried away from Ramah the stones and timber Basha had been using. With them, he built up Geba and Mizpah. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord reigned throughout the earth to strengthen those whose heart are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on you will be at war. Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison. At the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. 
The events of Asa's reign from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Then, in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his ancestors. They buried him in the tomb that he had cut out for himself in the city of David. They laid him on a bayer covered with spices and various blended perfumes, and they made a huge fire in his honor. Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king and strengthened himself against Israel. He stationed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and put garrisons in Judah and in the towns of Ephraim that his father Asa had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the ways of his father David before him. He did not consult the Baals, but sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. The Lord established the kingdom under his control, and all Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat so that he had great wealth and honor. His heart was devoted to the way of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. In the third year of his reign, he sent his official Ben-Hali, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, and Machai to teach in the towns of Judah. With them were certain Levites, Shammai, Nathaniel, Zebediah, Asahel, Shemeramoth, Jehonathan, Adinajah, Tobijah, and Tob Adinajah, and the priests Elishama and Jehoram. They taught through Judah, taking with them the book of the law of the Lord. They went around to all the towns of Judah and taught the people. The fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the land surrounding Judah, so that they did not go to war against Jehoshaphat. Some Philistines brought Jehoshaphat gifts and silver as tribute, and the Arabs brought him flocks, 7,700 rams, and 7,700 goats. Jehoshaphat became more and more powerful. He built forts and store cities in Judah and had large supplies in the towns of Judah. He also kept experienced fighting men in Jerusalem. Their enrollment by families was as followed. From Judah, commanders of units of a thousand, Adnah the commander with 300,000 fighting men, next Jehonan the commander with 280,000, next Amasai son of Zikri who volunteered himself for the service of the Lord with 200,000. From Benjamin, Elida, a valiant soldier with 200,000 men armed with bows and shields, next Jehozabad with 180,000 men armed for battle. These were the men who served the king besides those who stationed in the fortified cities throughout Judah. Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, chapter 4. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's den and the mountain's haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride, and you have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garment is like the fragrance of love 
Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloe, and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water, streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Marty Solomon and Dr. Mackey both bring my attention to Song of Songs or Song of Solomon being about love, but also quite explicit about desire. Marty Solomon said that he believed young Jewish boys were not allowed to read or memorize this book until at least after their coming of age, their bar mitzvah, because this book was descriptively graphic and intense. Granted, there are some cultural differences in how the writing is explicit. But still, I think we get it. It's funny, in the Western world, we are inundated with advertising and entertainment that is quite explicitly about desire. But for some reason, as Marty Solomon points out, many Christians are often uncomfortable acknowledging it in context or in content and connection with Scripture. As he says, much of the discussion around desire in the church is how to teach the younger generation moral codes largely about what not to do. So that's so interesting when at the same time, the church, which is a collection of people that have self-reported to be Christ followers, have experienced, particularly from their leaders, a considerable number of sexual scandals. Does the nature of making the conversation on desire in church taboo outside of moral lists of don'ts increase the risk of sexual scandal? I don't know, but it seems important to consider further. I mean, this book is not at all quiet about sexual desire, with some pretty specific imagery used. The contrast between what we see and allow as consumers and what we will or won't talk about in Christian contexts is particularly interesting to me. Is this a problem? Why or why not? How do we fix it if it is a problem? It begins to look more and more like the gospel according to John, which we read in our first Messianic checkpoint. Remember chapter 17, verses 14 to 19? which reads, I, being Jesus, have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it, sanctifying them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified." How can we think about putting this into action? A Theology of Work article offered five observable ways people try to be in the world but not of it. The first is separation. People try to separate themselves from the world, but to me, this would have to be like seasonal or situational thing, like Jesus retreating to the wilderness or a garden to pray. Remember, focus on the story he is living in and the relationship and the role that is most important. Second, an option, observable option, is assimilation, where we try to justify or explain or ignore and simply live in the culture at hand. Third, live in faith bubbles. Fourth, engage in culture wars. Or fifth is compassion, where there was understanding and empathy regarding the challenge and the risk of drift without an anchor. And when drift occurs, like the cycles of redemption we've talked about, seek the Lord for atonement and restoration, help others navigate to Jesus, and then seek transformation through Shema, 
Remember that wholehearted soul pursuit of God and obedience. Come close to the details of the story. Remember, remember, lean on the Holy Spirit, the advocate God gave each of us who asked for him to become the representative leaders and brand ambassadors he called us to be in every aspect of our lives, including desire. Whether we are single or not, desire is a part of our lives and is, at least in part, tied to the divine gift of love that God gave humans. Marty Solomon encouraged me to think more about this story in the Hebrew sense and not a moral code or political sense. There are three Hebrew words used to talk about love, particularly romantic love. The first Hebrew word is raya. It's neighborly or sibling-like kind of love, best friend-like. Raya is connected in root to the Hebrew word rayaka, which means neighbor. Raya is a love that is tied to familiarity. Think about the people in your spheres of influence. It's more than an awareness or acquaintance, but more of an interest or preference, the beginning of attachment, where in a relationship, you think and have positive thoughts about this person, and and you think of them often, and you have positive feelings about them, you want to hang out with them. This is the desire, this is Raya, that has more to do with all the feels or emotions. It's about chemistry and electricity. The next Hebrew word for love is ahava, which is not about emotion, but commitment, irregardless of romantic feelings. So you can have them or not, but ahava is a commitment to be there for someone no matter what. And Marty Solomon reminds us that God asks us to love our neighbors, and we are to love them with ahava and to love God with ahava, the commitment, because raya, as Marty Solomon reminds us, and psychology supports this, emotions will wax and wane. Emotions, negative or positive, are a transient mood state that wash over us. And in many cases, they have a pattern and a tendency, and we can't necessarily control them washing over us, and they'll ebb and flow in their intensity. The best friend feeling of raya comes and goes, but ahava is a choice. The third type of Hebrew love is dod. This is the desire. So sexual intimacy cravings. This book, The Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, talks about all three of these Hebrew loves as if they are woven together in the relationship between this man and woman with frequent garden references, as Dr. Mackey describes. Marty Solomon says our culture tends to focus on raya, think wedding ceremonies and hallmark. Dare I also say in our church worship services, we want all the feels of our best friend closeness attachment. In our dating culture, which is often approached with a consumer mindset of do you, the other person, give me all the feels or not? Or our culture is increasingly so, with the help of the internet, focus on dode, with or without the need for raya, so with or without the need for best friend feelings, or ahava, which is commitment. Dode or sexual desire is sometimes dwindled down to something of like basic animalistic urges that like working out or eating food. All of these seem to be skewed from what is described here in the Song of Songs, where all three, Raya, Ahava, and Dode, are tied together here. But I also remember that this book is written more like tradition, without a clear mention of God per se. Yet there is a pattern of wisdom to these three loves creating the best type of a marital relationship. I note that Ahava it's our choice. It starts in the mind, becomes behavior, which impacts our behavior and has the opportunity, opportunity to impact our feelings and desires. We have the least direct control over Raya. We can't make ourselves have best friend feelings or others. 
and dote, sexual desire. We can't make ourselves have them or not have them. I think back to Ecclesiastes, where we cannot grab a hold of vapor, but we can appreciate it when it presents in our lives, and what we have agency over is our decision to respond. That's ahava. Choose to be committed and be grateful, appreciate, celebrate all the times and gifts of Raya and Dode. I can't speak for everyone, and I've only been married about 13 years, but I've noticed that the more I, we, commit to Ahava, being there for each other, listening and responding generously to each other's needs truly, the more Raya and Dode are a gift in the relationship. So to summarize, there are three types of Hebrew love, Raya, Ahava and Dode. The one we have the most influence over seems to be Ahava, committed love, and it's the one God calls us to give to our neighbor, to him, with but Raya and Dode are also divine gifts of love that are in the story, tethered together, and what Dr. Mackey sees as a possible story that points back to Adam and Eve in their one flesh relationship in the garden. Woo, a lot to think about. And we continue the story of the North and the Southern Kingdoms. So hopefully you were paying close attention to when I was talking about the North or the tribes of Israel and the South, the tribe of Judah. We read, but it shouldn't have been too much of a shock how all the Northern Kings were not faithful. And Asa, the king of the South, who had been faithful until this story, where he put a treaty before his faith in the Lord. Ah, it feels like Solomon and so many others who start out faithful and then begin to drift into thinking it's all up to them to make things happen. They don't consult the Lord and just do what they think is right or best. And it tends to be grabs for political and financial power. Control. Remember from Genesis 1 throughout, God gave us a purpose to use the portion of power and authority he gave us, agency to rule, subdue, participate in leadership, becoming a kingdom of priests, putting God on display, helping others navigate to Jesus for atonement, interceding for the rebellious and the hurting in prayer, consulting God with the what and how to respond, being prodigally generous because the prophet the prophet, that is the provision, protection, and progeny are God's gift. He gives those. We don't take those. We're a part of his world, his leadership. God is not a small part of our world where he is supporting our leadership. It's too important not to forget this, particularly in a culture driven by self-autonomy and independence, where individual success, control over our destiny, seems to often be more important than being a brand ambassador for God, a representative leader who is about the Lord's legacy, his name in a kingdom with no end, and a story that is still unfolding today. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.